Disability doesn't discriminate, but the government does. If you become disabled and you're over 65 years old, you get less funding than someone who's younger. This simply isn't fair. Even the Aged Care Royal Commission agreed it's time to end age discrimination. Sign the petition at disabilitydoesn'tdiscriminate.com.au. It only takes a few seconds to add your voice and demand action now. Help end the discrimination. Find out more today at disabilitydoesn'tdiscriminate.com.au. Written and authorised by Mark Townend, Spinal Life. Welcome to Garden Views, interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Folks, welcome on into Garden Views. And this week we have another uh, guest uh, following our legal theme. Uh, this is Patrick J. Best. PJ Best, the, I mean, what a, the commercials just write themselves right there. If you want the best, get best. It's, it sounds good. Um, I don't think I'm giving you any intellectual property there with that creativity. But how are you doing tonight? Thank, thanks for joining us here. Uh, doing great. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure. Um, PJ was one of those lawyers that uh, they volunteered from my little missive on the Maryland Lawyers uh, Facebook group page. And I Again, I want to thank them. I want to thank the group. I want to thank the administrator who let that through, uh, who's letting the shows go on with members be posted there. Uh, it's all very kind. She doesn't have to. Um, you know, I don't see any reason why she wouldn't, but it's, you know, in some ways it's it's semi-solicitous, but not really. I mean, at least not on my part. Um, anyway, so let's talk about Patrick. Uh, Patrick is a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And before they went to the Rochester Institute of Technology, so you think he'd be a patent attorney, but no, that's not the way it worked out. Uh, he was a law clerk. I'm not going to tell you who the judge was, but it was in Lackawanna County Court of Common Pleas, because I want to say Lackawanna. Um, PJ's represented disabled individuals across Pennsylvania and surrounding states who were denied Social Security disability benefits and supplemental security income, which maybe is another show for the future. We'll, we'll see about that. But today he's going to be talking mostly about the law surrounding student loans. And that is certainly a hot topic claim. There's, uh, there's discussions about uh, forgiveness of student loans and there's discussions of forgiveness of 50,000 of student loans. And, and there's been a lot of debate about that. And, and we may or may not get to that because we're talking about the, the law of it, not necessarily the policy, but me and PJ talked about this a little bit at pre-production, very little, um, just so that it wouldn't be a gotcha type of situation. Um, but, He's an experienced bankruptcy practitioner. His practice is based upon Premier Customer Services, and he's been named a top 10 bank, best bankruptcy lawyer in Pennsylvania. He's licensed in Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. So here's a guy who took a lot of tests. Um, so he's a doer. Um, and he represents individuals and businesses in chapters 7, 11, 12, and 13 of the Bankruptcy Code. We'll, we're going to spend time on the bankruptcy code as it's related to student loans and where it's necessary. But I have another show recorded with a, another attorney, Eric Steiner, where we go more in depth into the bankruptcy code. So if you're interested in that, just wait a few weeks because it'll be coming. And But there are a lot of student loan adversary proceedings uh, and Patrick handles those nationwide. So we'll talk about that as well. He's a member of the National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys and the National Association of Consumer Advocates. 
He hosts a YouTube show called Bankruptcy Basics. Um, he's also works in a tax, uh, tax attorney. I'm sorry. He's an accomplished tax attorney, obviously working with taxes, and he's a CFP professional. He handles tax planning and works with small business owners to save money and taxes. He handles tax resolution problems. A lot of stuff here. Um, he also hosts a YouTube show called Tax Talk. So uh, plenty there. Um, I talked about the four uh, uh, state jurisdictions he's in. He's also in the federal jurisdictions that correspond to those state jurisdictions. And, and yes, that those are separate bars, uh, bar associations that you would see. 2019, he earned a certificate in reasonable attorney's fees from the National Association of Legal Fee Analysis. Yes, there's such an organization, so someone's watching to make sure people charge fairly. And, and well, I guess best got the best of that. Um, he is also a fellow with the National Association of Legal Fee, uh, fee Analysis, and he serves as an expert in attorney's fees and legal billing in a variety of cases. Uh, from my time on the Attorney Grievance Commission, I can tell you that that is a hot topic all the time. Um, he's frequently featured in the media, including U.S. News and World Report, WFMZ, which I am assuming is a uh, radio station uh, close to your part of the world. Yeah, it's a, in a TV channel as well. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. And he's uh, spoken many times to attorneys and bar groups regarding a number of legal issues. Um, so that was a bit of a mouthful, but I, I feel like if someone's done so much, they should be uh, those things should be noticed. And, and I don't want to jip him this. In 2012, uh, super lawyers uh, named him as a rising star in their Philadelphia issue. Um, so that is terrific. So thank you so much for joining us. And I, I guess we can start with an overview of the law of student loans. I guess we should say what student loans are, though. I think most people know what they are, but this is a U.S.-based show and not all the listeners are. So maybe just the basics of what a student loan is, how people get it, the avenues they can get it, and then where, you know, what, what the basic laws are. So thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, yes, yeah, so when we talk about student loans, generally what we're talking about are loans that are meant to pay for tuition along with uh, associated costs for uh, post-secondary education uh, and graduate school. So it's not just tuition, it's tuition, it's room, it's board, it's living expenses. It's things that you pay for while you're attending either college or a graduate program. Uh, there's separate rules that apply to many of these loans uh, because of their unique purpose. So if you're getting a loan specifically for school, uh, for those educational loans, uh, they're not exactly in line with all the other consumer-based loans, but they follow a separate set of laws which is what makes student loan law so unique. Uh, we have both federal and private loans, and whether you have a federal loan or a private loan can really also change which sets of laws will apply. I think most people now uh, are getting federal loans. The federal loan program's expanded pretty significantly. Uh, it's grown tremendously over the years. So now, normally what would happen if you're going to college, you go to the financial aid office, they would help you with the financial aid applications. They would tell you how much you owe, and then they would help you get that money from the federal government, which then, of course, turns into a student loan. If for some reason that wasn't enough money, you weren't able to borrow enough money from the federal government, you can turn to uh, private lenders. You borrow basically from a bank, and there's a number of them that, that offer 
the specialty product, this educational loan. Uh, Discover, for example, offers an educational loan product, uh, which is kind of like a consumer loan, but does have a few extra tweaks to it because it is a student loan. So those are those uh, two distinctions are important. Is it a federal loan or is it a private loan? Because that's really going to tell us uh, what sets of laws we're going to be applying uh, when we're when we're looking at these loans. Okay, uh, and what's uh, the term Pell Grant is is thrown around a bit. What's a Pell Grant? So in, in, when you're doing the financial aid applications, there's a number of types of aid that you may be eligible for. So student loans are just one of those types of tools. Uh, Pell Grants are, are grants that, are, that help pay for your education. They're from the federal government, but they don't have to be repaid back. Okay. So they're not a loan because we don't have to repay them back. That's why they're called a grant. Right. Uh, typically, you would get those first and then anything that was left over, you would borrow uh, and you get a direct loan uh, is what they call them now. Now, I know that student loans on uh, at least the federally backed ones, which are they still administered through private banks? No, that's uh, that stopped a while ago. Um, although if you had a one that was administered through a private bank when you took it out, it still would be uh, unless you consolidated after that point. So it's at some point, I think the year was 2010. Uh, the government started the direct loan program, which where the, the government is actually the, the entity that creates the loan and uh, lends you the money. Okay, so theoretically, prior, prior to that, it was the it was the private banks. Okay, so so th- theoretically, anyway, if they're paid back, then then the federal government should have a return on its investment on people. Though the interest rates, I, I guess, are typically pretty low, right? You know, there's arguments about from a policy standpoint should should the government get a return on it. Uh, <laughs> You know, should they be making a profit or should they just be offering uh, the service and then getting the money paid back should be enough for them. The interest rates can be higher than you would expect. Um, people are consolidating now. I'm seeing five, six percent. Okay. So that, that isn't so low. Well, I mean, it's lower than a credit card, but it's higher than a mortgage. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's not terribly low. I it's, it's also higher than uh, what you would. Like if you were carrying a tax debt, like if you owed the IRS at the end of the year and you couldn't pay it, you got an installment agreement, the interest on those installment agreements is 3%. So it's actually higher than that if you were, quote unquote, borrowing money from the government by not paying your taxes. That's a little bit crazy. That, that's a strange incentive basis right there. You'd think that the government would at least be consistent in its interest rates, but inconsistency between different branches of the government and different agencies and state and federal government is something that frustrates people all the time. Lawyers too, but it also helps us get business. So it's sort of a double-edged sword in in our world. So anyway, enough about that part of it. So grants are not repaid. The loans are administered through the federal government, but there are private student loans, as we discussed. Scholarships are entirely different thing that you get money, you do certain things. I suppose there are cases where you breach the agreement and you may have to pay something back, but usually I think you just forfeit it. That's, we're not really talking about that necessarily. Um, now student loans, I think one of the things that people know about, one of the nice things about it is that you can defer payment, which I suppose is a mixed less, well, maybe it's not anymore. If the interest rate stays the same, is there any impact? Can you still defer liberally? What are the terms of deferral? And is there any cost to you in, in deferral? Meaning the borrower. Yes. Um, so on the federal loans, 
generally the way that it works is that you defer while you're in school. They call it an in-school deferment. That's the standard because you're not, presumably you're not working. You're not able to pay your loans back. Those generally start repayment about six months after graduation. Uh, Interest does accrue. People don't realize that, uh, especially if you're you're lending money to 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. They don't realize or understand that the four years that they're in school, you're accruing interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, they they do generally give you two different, if you borrow money, you get a strike loan. They give you two different types of loans. They'll give you what's called a subsidized loan and an unsubsidized loan. Uh, The subsidized loans, the interest is not accruing. Uh, and the unsubsidized loans, they are. Uh, so you generally don't have the entire balance is not unsubsidized, but interest is accruing when it's in deferral. Uh, the exception to that, uh, I said generally the interest accrues, but the COVID forbearance for the last two years when people were not paying their loans, the government was not requiring them to repay their loans, the interest was not being accrued at that time. So based on the COVID forbearance, there was no interest. Okay, well, that's nice, but you hope. Hopefully that doesn't repeat again. There's no guarantees of that. We don't know that. But that was nice. But still, whatever interest accrued prior to the time did. Now, I wonder, it was interesting you said if you're not working. What if, what if you are working? What if you're a night student and you're working full time? Or what if you carry a full time job at nights and you have, you know, or just your schedule allows you to work full time? There's a lot of telecommuting now working from home. Why couldn't that be from campus or wherever you live while you're going to school? Does, does that make a difference? You generally can still get the in-school deferment, and most people do, uh, and they use that money to live. But if you were in a position where you had extra money and you wanted to start repaying your loans, you could. Nobody doesn't stop you, but you're just not required to pay. Okay, so there's no prepayment penalty, but you're you're right. not you're not penalized by not being able to borrow the money. You're still entitled to the student loan. Um, you're just you're just sort of borrowing from yourself a little bit, or or perhaps your career is. Uh, stagnant until you get that degree so you you need the money for whatever reason but anyway that, that right. was a that was a easy answer and you gave an easy answer so that's cool um all right so let, let's get to the part where somebody gets into a, a little bit of trouble they're late on their student loans uh you know what what happens does it does it go to a is there internal collections are there external collection agencies what do lawyers do? Are there lawsuits, uh, liens? What you know? Is it like the IRS where they don't have to file a suit? Let's, let's get into the, the dirty part of it. Yeah, uh, private loans are easier because those are treated like most consumer loans. You default like any other loan; they'll they have to sue you. Um, general rules applies. There's statute of limitations issues. Uh, all everything you would expect from a consumer loan is true. Uh, so they can't collect on you without a judgment and they need to follow the execution procedures of the given state. So all of those things remain true for private loans. So there's nothing big or special there with federal loans. Uh, obviously it's a little bit different. You, if you default on a federal loan and it does depend on whether or not you have one of those older loans, which we call FFEL loans. Those were the ones that were backed by private banks or you have the direct loans, which were issued by the federal government. If you default on an FFEL loan, those are guaranteed by the federal government. So they are passed uh, to a guarantee agency who would then have to service it in default. With the the federal, or the direct loans that are serviced directly by the federal government, uh, there is a period of time where you could be late, but not quite in default. Uh, you do have to miss 
it's nine months before they consider the loan to be in default. And when it's in default, uh, they can do some things. So that, so you asked, do, do they have to file suit? No, there's a lot of things they can do to you that are not, you don't not required to file a lawsuit. So for example, treasury offset. So if you have a tax refund, they can take it. You have social security, they can take it. Mm-hmm. So all, all of the things that would be subject to treasury offset, uh, they have access to that. They can file suit if they want to. Um, and sometimes they do. Um, we do see that from time to time, although it's generally not over small amounts of money. And it's generally not over people who don't have anything. So if you have no money, the government tends to know that. Uh, and then they don't pursue things as hard. Um, now that's starkly different than the private sector, who they'll generally sue everybody and then judge the cases uh, either on a post-judgment status or sometimes pre-judgment. But usually post-judgment, they'll take their judgment and you know, hope, hope that your life improves over time, even though the judgment is probably going to hold you back and or you one files bankruptcy at some point. Um, but yeah. yeah. Now, it's, it's worse with student loans because because they have that special protection from bankruptcy uh, or generally they have a better protection in bankruptcy. They're more likely to want the judgment because they the lenders believe that it's not dischargeable so that they'll get the judgment against you and then they'll follow you around for the rest of your life until they can collect. Well, let's get to that then. Uh, Are they exempt from bankruptcy or non-dischargeable? Is that judgment something magical versus just the being in default status itself? Yeah, so this also requires an analysis to whether or not it's a federal loan or a private loan. Uh, The general rule is student loans are non-dischargeable. It's the general rule. The general rule is you can't get rid of them. the exception to that is if you can show an undue hardship. That is a high bar. That's why you hear people say it's impossible because it's hard to show. It's not impossible to show. It's just hard to show. Um, we don't see it a lot uh, with federal loans because it is so hard to show. Uh, the other problem with federal loans is that they do offer income-driven repayment plans. So the argument that the government always makes is, well, hold on a second. If you don't have money to pay, go on income driven repayment, your payment could be zero. Mm-hmm. And it's your, if, if your income is low enough, your income driven repayment could be zero. So what's the hardship? Right. That's, that's always their argument. There's times where we still have creative arguments, but that's the generally the difficult thing about federal student loans. Private student loans, is not quite that, it's not quite that strict. Uh, they have a couple extra hurdles. Uh, first problem is, they have to prove that they have a qualified educational loan. And that has a special meaning. It's actually defined in the Internal Revenue Code. And if they don't meet the requirements of a qualified educational loan, then they're not a qualified, they're not a student loan. They're a consumer loan. They're just a, like a signature loan or personal loan. So they don't get any special protections. Can how does that happen? How do you get a student loan from a private lender that is not a qualified educational loan? Uh, a lot of it has to do with purpose or intent. Um, part of it is it has to be it has to be for a qualified institution, which not all institutions are qualified. Okay. The, the federal government says only certain institutions qualify. Um, you have to, you have to be a qualified person, uh, so it doesn't apply to non-U.S. citizens. It doesn't apply to so there's different rules that, it, that determine whether or not you're 
even able to get a qualified educational loan. Uh, and then purpose. So saying that you're using it for schools, not, I, I don't think that that's enough. They'll tell me that it is. They'll say, yeah, no, of course, that's all you need. Uh, our position is that you need to show that it was for the cost of attendance. And that has a technical definition as well. Um, if you use it for other things, like you use it to go out to eat, you use it at the movies, you use it for, for your life while you're at school, my position is uh, it's not a qualified educational loan because it was not for the cost of attendance. So if somebody can, and you are still a student or a young person who's considering taking these loans and you're thinking about getting a private loan, you have to almost be like a business where you have a corporation and you're an individual and you have to keep two sets of books, two, two accounts. One you use only for books and tuition and, you know, direct school activities. And then the other you use for regular life, if at all possible. Otherwise, you are risking your eligibility for uh, some sort of dischargeability protection later on in bankruptcy, which is a whole lot of ifs. And everybody thinks it's not going to happen to them. But if yeah. If you talk to a lawyer, the lawyer is going to tell you, you always think it's going to happen to you. Think of the worst case scenario. Well, they, and they also have, so they have other issues too with the private loans because the first hurdle is they have to show it's a qualified educational loan. And that's just to prove it's a student loan to begin with. If it's not a student loan, it's just discharge. If it is a student loan, they still we still have the undue hardship exception. The difference between private loans and federal loans with undue hardship is there is no income-driven repayment plan on private loans. You don't get to go to them and say, I'm not making any money, so my payment should be zero. If you agree that you, and I, and I had this, I had this case because I had a client who went to law school, spent $430,000. She, it, it was private loan. Sure. Four, $430,000. Her payment was $4,300 a month. Well, she wasn't making enough money to, bank for, to pay $4,300 a month. She called them and asked. Can I get a reduction? Can we do something? And they said, no. Well, now we have an undue hardship because I can't afford $4,300 a month. You won't reduce it. Uh, so I can't afford it. So it makes it a little easier. And uh, the other unique thing we see is that a lot of these loans have acceleration clauses. So if you default or if you file bankruptcy in some cases, uh, that alone triggers a default which triggers a acceleration of the loan, which means now you don't only owe your monthly payment, you owe the entire balance. You know, I just realized in my analysis earlier, I actually analyzed it backwards. If you are the student or the borrower, you want to do exactly the opposite of what I said. You want to have everything commingled so you can preserve that defense. If you're the bank, I don't even know if this legal, one of the requirements is that you should be that you keep a separate account for education. I don't know if they're allowed to do that, but if I was a bank, I would, I would, have them, they, you know, do that. Well, they, they take a much more liberal position. And so I've gotten into some fights over this in court, but they take the position that if you tell them it's for school, then that's all they need. So they don't need you to, they, they don't need books. They don't need proof. They don't need anything. Because when you signed the loan agreement, you told them me, you told me it was for school and that's all I need. So they, they basically take the position. It's too much trouble to do all the rest. We understand that there's going to be a certain percentage that's going to go into default. We understand that a certain percentage is, is likely to be discharged. If that occurs, we'll look at it then and we'll try to fight with them then. But we it's we know that if we lose 7%, it's a cost of doing business. That, that, that's right. So they say, apply for the loan. Tell me what it's for. If you say school or student loans or something like that, they call it a student loan in their books and they treat it as such. 
whether or not I agree that it is or, or the law agrees that it is, they treat it that way. And then, you know, that's when you end up in litigation. Well, your their treatment for, opens up that argument for you, for your clients. Right. Okay. Right. So earlier when I was listening, I did, you know, obviously it took a while to marinate when I realized. And so, folks, this, a lot of this is new to me. When I took student loans, uh, I went to un the university. I sound so British. When I went to university, it was 86 to 90 in law school, 90 to 93. So whatever happened in 2010, I, I think I was paying Nations Bank, which is now Bank of America. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't get any grants, but I had I remember I had some of those loans that didn't accrue interest, but most of them did accrue interest. And so you were very happy to get the ones that didn't accrue interest because that was cool. That was great. Um, but it was only a little bit great because you knew you had a, you still owed the money at some point. It's just a little bit of deferral. When you're a kid, you're 18, 19, you don't care. You don't care about that. You care about, you know, meeting, in my case, girls, you know, or your partner. You, you're you worried about getting into a fraternity or the right fraternity. You're not even worried about your GPA. You're, you're worried about your social life. Well, maybe maybe some people worry about their GPA. Anyway, so moving off of, of uh, uh, too much into the life, the inside of Jeff uh, at 17. Um, so... The private student loans, there's that little, we'll call it a quandary, but almost the laziness of the banks can work for the consumer, which is strange. It, 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 intuitively, it's, it seems wrong, but I guess if you've worked with enough banks, you know that if somebody's too much trouble on the front end, they, they do accept a certain risk and level of loss because they make it up in volume and interest. Yes, and, and just frankly, people who just don't try to discharge them. So a lot of their loans are non-discharged because people just don't try. It's true. A lot of people give up, you know, at, at the first sign of trouble, and if not the first, the second. A lot of people, you know, fold up their sales pretty quickly. So I, I, I don't know if there's anything more with the, with the privately funded student loans to talk about. If there is, please feel free. If not, I guess we can move on to the federal because that's probably most of the universe of what we're talking about. Sure. Yeah, um, so I think we were talking about default, and uh, before we talk, started talking about the bankruptcy, uh, we were talking about the differences in the default, and I think the um, main thing about federal default, and we do see this a lot, people come to our office, they're in default, and they at some point decide that they want to either turn their life around and get back on track, or they're tired of their refunds being stolen. They say stolen, but they're just going to repay their loans. They're tired <laughs> of that. Uh or they, they want to do something. They want to buy a house. Um, thing, it's For some reason, the default is jamming them up. The federal government does allow you the opportunity to try to get out of default in a couple different ways. Uh, one of those we call rehabilitation, which is basically we put you back into a payment plan. They give you nine months uh, to try to get back into the plan. If you, as long as you're making your payments, they consider your loans rehabilitated. They give you one shot at that. The uh, other option is we can consolidate again. If you're eligible for consolidation, you can actually consolidate out of default. It's actually they give you a totally different loan. It's brand new. It's not defaulted, uh, and that we use a lot too. So they, it's a little bit more lenient in a lot of ways to have those federal loans. There's there's pros and cons for sure. They're they're harder to get rid of in bankruptcy, but they do give you the flexible repayment plans. They have a lot of administrative discharge options that are not bankruptcy related. Uh, and depending on the nature of the default, it could be easier to get out of default than with the private loan. Okay, so assuming that we can't discharge in bankruptcy, 
there are still options in bankruptcy that can at least help alleviate the pressure on on a debtor. Uh, one of those, of course, is if it's a, you know, well, most types of bankruptcies may allow you to discharge other debt as well, which can alleviate pressure by, you know, basically if both your arms hurt and only one of them hurts, it might be easier to deal with the pain. Um, but we're, we're not going to spend too much time talking about that. That just sort of seems a bit intuitive. Um, what, how can bankruptcy help someone uh, even if the debt is not dischargeable? So what we do, what we like to say, so if we get rid of other debt, sometimes that frees up enough money that it makes the student loans less painful. Sure. That, that's one of the main things. The other thing is many, many courts uh, are allowing us to continue income-based repayment plans while we are in active Chapter 13 bankruptcy. And without going into bankruptcy, because I know you're going to be talking to Eric Steiner, uh, Chapter 13 is a repayment plan. So it's a little bit different than what we would think of when you think of bankruptcy, but it's a repayment plan. And some of the some of the bankruptcy courts are allowing us to continue making our payments under the income-driven model. The advantage there is the income-driven repayment plans allow for discharge after 20 or 25 years, depending on the type of loan and the type of plan. So if you're in bankruptcy, Chapter 13 bankruptcy for three or five years, you think about making five years worth of payments on your student loans, you're, you could be a quarter of the way done. And that's a pretty big deal. So it does allow a lot of flexibility in terms of uh, getting back on track with things like income-based repayment uh, and things of that nature within bankruptcy. Are there times where it's a high-income earner, uh, but not high enough, maybe the Chapter 11 is available or attractive, they want to pay off all of their student loans in the Chapter 13, the uh, 36 to uh, 60 months that's allowed, um, instead of taking uh, taking advantage of the income-driven, uh, maybe because of credit considerations. I mean, I imagine getting that done in five years once you file the bankruptcy still is better off long-term for credit if you feel like you're event horizon, like if you're, if you went to medical school and you're, you know, in, in the emergency room or resident, but, you know, you feel in two or three years that there's a pretty good chance you're going to be picked up by a private practice and, you know, by whatever, 35, you'll be a partner somewhere, you know, and then you'll be looking at golf clubs. Um, you know, that maybe your credit will be better at, at that point with the Chapter 13 bankruptcy rather than this 20, 25 year income driven uh, or would the income driven adjust so much because your income went up that it would end up in the same place? So once, once your income is too high uh, such that it would, your income based payment would be higher than a 10 year plan, then they max you out of the 10 year plan. So your payment plan is like, if you're doing income driven repayment, you're never going to be less. I guess the best way to say it would be your payments will never be more than they would on a 10 year standard plan. Okay. Now they could be, if you wanted to finish quicker than 10 years, you absolutely could pay more, but they're never going to be, they're never going to make you go more than, than that amount that you would be for 10 years. So what you're talking about in terms of like restructuring student loans can be done in a chapter 13, but the amount would have to be low enough that it would make sense. If it was going to be anything, if it was too expensive to do in five years, I think you would either want to look at one of the other longer term payment options with the Department of Education. There's many long term payment options that could lower your payment. Or you mentioned Chapter 11. And if, you, if your loans are high enough, 
you can really restructure them through chapter 11 and you can get some really favorable terms there, but it is much more costly to go that route. Yeah. I, or, or I guess if you had a whole lot of other debt that was otherwise dischargeable that would make bankruptcy attractive or maybe necessary. Can you convert, if you finish your chapter 13 plan um, and you haven't, you you know, you're, you're, you're still paying, can you convert to an income driven at that point? Or, or do you just, you already said that under certain circumstances, sometimes the government will let those income driven payments be part of the chapter 13 plan or sort of run parallel to them. If you haven't done that parallel path, if you thought you were going to get it done in chapter 13 under three to five years, but it just isn't going to work. Is there some method by which you can transfer, switch courses uh, out of the 13 for just the student loans alone and go into the income driven? Um, I imagine that would need trustee approval. I mean, or, or is that just something that doesn't happen? Uh, I want to make sure I'm answering your question, but I, I, so you're saying like if you're in chapter 13 and you're finding that it's too expensive to pay the student loans? Yeah. Or you're saying, so one of the, one of the other tools I use, um, if it's appropriate, is you can just defer uh, through a bankruptcy. So like if you did a five-year chapter 13 and, and paying a portion of your debt and then paying your student loans, even at the income-driven rate, if that was still too much, you can just elect to defer for five years. Uh, the government, I've never had them object to that plan. Um, they accrue interest the whole time. It does, the time doesn't count towards your income-driven plan, but maybe you don't care. Uh, at the end of your five years, you can either restart doing income-driven or you can look at another option. Um, I've used that plan strategically for older people. Um, so like I've had clients in their 60s or 70s who, and it's usually not their loans, but they end up with these parent plus loans because they try to take out loans for their kids because yeah. they thought they were being helpful. And now they're 60 or 70 and they're on social security, but they can't afford to pay the student loans. Right. Um, I've used chapter 13 to just delay student loans repayment repay for five years. At the end of the five years, the presumption is my clients are either so old that they are enfeebled in some way, they're disabled, and I can get a dis disability discharge, or they're retired, and their income is so low that the income-driven repayment plan would now be zero, or close to zero. Um, so it does provide some respite if you just need a break, uh, and you don't want to default. Now, um, federal government will give you some time off if you need it. You just, call it you just call and ask for a forbearance. They'll give you a year of forbearance at a time without too much trouble. You can get up to three years of forbearance on a loan. Um, so it's really just a balancing act of what do I need? Do I need a year? Do I need two years? Do I need five years? If you need five years, you probably need bankruptcy. Well, that's probably where your certified financial planner background comes into play and, and you're really able to crunch those numbers and figure out which is uh, the most advantage and you know, or at least what are the pros yeah. and cons of each one. Though I'm sure just a, a regular bankruptcy practitioner could probably do that to an extent as well. But uh, I'm sure yours, it's probably more in and obviously, that's in your your wheelhouse of uh, you know your your skill set more than maybe math is mine. Yeah, I, I think what ends up happening when, when there's a complicated student loan issue, most bankruptcy attorneys kind of punt, and, and that's okay. I, I like that actually. I like when they call me and ask me to do the student loan portion. Um, simple bankruptcy is not that simple when there's a student loan issue. So they either call me and ask me to co-counsel, they just call me and ask me for advice, or 
they do the bankruptcy and they refer the client to me for the student loan. Those are, those are all fine with me. Um, it's some, not every bankruptcy attorney is comfortable dealing with that student loan aspect, uh, but that's okay because they don't have to be. I don't know, probably, probably a lot of them are people that are my age or older who aren't familiar at all with any of this uh, new metrics that, that exist. I mean, it, it sounds to me like, like the federal government is pretty nice, pretty liberal when it comes to this. For the most part, if you know, if you know how it works, uh, you have the right loans, you plan the right way. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is it can, depending on how much you have, it can hang over your head. Yeah. I, I have clients with hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans. That's when it becomes a problem. I mean, I've seen people who are disqualified from mortgage applications, not because their monthly payment was too high, because they were on income-based repayment. It was pretty low, actually. But their total debt load right. uh, precluded them from getting a mortgage. And now you're in a real tough spot, because now what? You can never get a mortgage. You just never get one, because you have this student loan. Uh, that's what, that's it's a real issue. So that's kind of what we have to work around sometimes. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, same reason, I guess. So well, maybe even a little real or why, if you have a bunch of credit cards, you don't use them, and yeah, but you have credit limits of I don't know, whatever fifty thousand dollars on them. You know, you, you sort of need to close some of those accounts that you're not using just so that that open endedness is in there because you know banks can use that against you, even though banks are the one who you know sold you on those cards in the first place. Um, it, it, it's, an, it's an interesting and complicated world uh, where sometimes the banks are in some ways competing against themselves. Um, so I know that there's a lot of discussion these days about loan, uh, student loan forgiveness, student loan forgiveness up to $50,000, up to $10,000. I mean, I'm sure all of it would be welcome for your clients who have hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm sure anything is welcome, but $10,000 probably doesn't feel like you know, it's a drop in the bucket. $50,000, you know, is good. But once you got it, then you're like, yeah, that's one six, but I've got the other five six uh, st still doing owing. So, I mean, I know this isn't really necessarily a Apollo the Sea Show, but it's not necessarily not either. What are, what are your thoughts on it? You're, I mean, you're, you know, probably, not probably, you're definitely younger than me, but not, you know, I couldn't be your dad, I don't think, unless I was very prolific at a young age, but I, I you know, I, I, if I was your older brother, it would have meant that the, that your parents, you know, had a large gap or we had a, a bunch of siblings between us. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of different policy proposals floating around and it depends on what your goal is. When you float around $10,000 in forgiveness and $50,000 forgiveness, I, the reason that they're doing that is because Biden's trying to figure out a way to do it without Congress. That's it. I mean, the reality is for most of my clients, 10 does nothing. Right. Uh, for most of my clients, 50 does nothing. I, I mean, like 50 would help a lot of people if your total student loan obligation was like under 100,000, sure. which is not, it's not an insignificant portion of the population. But a lot of my clients are over 100,000. Right. And at some point, the loans are so high that you just can't pay them off. And, and dropping 50 off of that isn't going to make it easier to pay off. You still can't pay it off. These people are put on these income-based payment plans. With that's their only hope of ever getting rid of them. So whether your total balance is three hundred or two fifty, you still need income-based repayment, and you still need to get the forgiveness at the end of it. So it makes almost no difference. 
what's interesting is we talked earlier about private banks and how they make these decisions and they, they write into their model a certain amount of people who are not going to be collected. Well, the government did the same thing. Mm-hmm. They, they know that they're not collecting all of these. But that's kind of what makes it silly because a lot of these loans, we know that they're not going to be repaid. So what are we doing? If you, if you know that the federal government lent you $300,000, $400,000, you're never going to pay it. You come out with a social work degree, you're making $50,000, $60,000 a year. Mathematically, it's impossible. So you go on income-based repayment and you do it for 20 years and your payment is so low that you're not even paying the interest on a loan. And at the end of it, the government forgives it. So what's the point? And I was asking you. <laughs> yeah, we, we make you pay for 20 years. We put the effort into collection. We pay the people who man the servicers, right? So right. We, pay, we put all this administration into it. And at the end of it, I don't pay it anyway. Right. So when people ask me, well, a lot of it is moral, right? People come out and they'll tell me, sure. well, if you take out a loan, you should repay it. I know people feel that way. They've been debtors and they're like, I, I repay my debts. My parents raised me to repay my I raised my children. Because by the way, I mean, I know in our examples, my examples mostly, we've been talking about younger people, kids out of school, not getting a great job, kid, you know, people, young adults working their way through uh, their careers before they take off. But a lot of times you've been paying your student loans 10, 15, whatever years, and something happens. You lose your job. Somebody gets sick. You get disabled. Uh, your spouse dies, what, whatever the case is, you have kids and one of your kids, you know, their medical expenses are, you know, it's, there can be a million things that derail someone when you have loans that last 20 or 30 years, you know, in everybody's life, rain falls and, and sometimes the rain is harder than others. And sometimes you just can't pick up uh, where to go. Now, it seems like there's more mechanisms to defer and things like that now than there were when this was part of my, my world and my life. Um, but still, uh, you know, uh, if I was a gambling man, I would bet that a lot of your clients probably fit into this latter category rather than 27 year olds. The, the, the burden, the, the burden is just too high. Most of my clients are not repaying their loans. I mean, that the answer is we talk about loan forgiveness and we say, why should we forgive everybody's loan? And my response to that is you're going to anyway. Mm-hmm. It's a question of when. Because most of my clients are either going to, they're going to get public service loan forgiveness after 10 years. Mm-hmm. They're going to get income-based repayment forgiveness after 20 or 25 years. They're just not going to pay. Some of them will default and just never pay. And then they'll die. And then when you die, the debt goes away anyway. Some of them will get permanent uh, or total permanent disability. Some of the people are not going to, like, I, I would love to see the statistics, and I, I haven't. I don't even know if the Department of Education has really done a full study on this. But the reality is people aren't paying these loans anyway. The problem and the difference between our current model and what a forgiveness model could look like, in a forgiveness model, we can all move past it. And in that example I gave earlier, this person was stopped from buying a house. Well, if we forgive that loan, that person can buy a house which right. stimulates the economy. Sure. If we don't forgive the loan, they're just going to trudge along for 20 years anyway. Now they can't buy a house. We trudge along for 20 years and then we forgive the loan. So all we did was make this person miserable for 20 years. We didn't collect any more money for the government. The government probably had a net loss because of the service cost of the loan over that period of time. 
I would suspect the government loses money uh, servicing these loans that will never be paid. It's interesting. I wonder if it's one of those things where if you invest a dollar in the tuition, you know, the, the, the loan isn't a loan, it's a grant, that you get back, you know, a dollar seventy-five, you know, over the long term, which I think is basically the argument that you're making. It's interesting. I, I want to ask you a question. As you went back, when you said Biden is trying to not have to go through Congress, is there something that allows them, is there something magical about these numbers, 10 and 50 or somewhere between 10 and 50, that allows him to do something without Congress? I mean, what's that What's that theory? I mean, obviously that that's the motivation, but I, I don't know why. I, I don't know if there's any support for that in the law. Uh, I do know he's asked the Justice Department to find out if he could do it. Uh, I'll tell you that he paused interest and extended the the COVID forbearance, like all by executive order. He didn't right. need Congress for that. So there's some level of, of flexibility in what he can do uh, without Congress. I don't. I don't think that that number has any basis in in law. Um, I think it was just more of a political tolerance. Like that number is like low enough that people can live with it, uh, and not there wouldn't be any like loss of political capital if he just for, forgave everything tomorrow without Congress. It would probably be challenged, and I think that that's the difference. You don't think it would be challenged if he just forgave fifty thousand dollars? That's not enough. I mean, who would do the challenging? Would 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 it be the well, the banks aren't lending, the federal government's lending. So who who would? Who is standing to challenge that in the public sector? Uh, it's a good question. Or private sector, uh, any, anywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, well, remember, part of this would come back to... Me who paid my student loans? I mean, do I get to challenge it? No, I, I, I'm sure there's cases that have failed on, on, in analogous situations constantly saying, nah, sorry, you don't have standing. Things changed. Uh, Congress, maybe? I, I don't, like a Republican congressman or something? theoretically challenge it on the basis that it is uh, overstepping executive authority. Interesting. I, I don't have a clear answer. That's, um, that's fine, because if he's manufacturing these numbers just by political consideration, not based on anything, how could you have a clear answer? That, that is he a, asked the Justice Department, not, to my knowledge, the Justice, Justice Department hasn't given it a, an answer as to whether or not he could or could not. Yeah, I remember the request for that inquiry, and I haven't heard anything back on it. Granted, there's been a few things that have happened since, but that that, that would either make the news or he would have tried to have snuck it through and, of course, failed because, you know, Tucker Carlson or somebody would have raised or Matt Gates would have, you know, or yeah, maybe Joe Manchin. I don't know. Somebody, who knows? Maybe it would come from somebody that you don't know. Maybe Bernie Sanders would yell that it wasn't enough. I, I have no idea. But um, that, that was that was talked about. Elizabeth Warren was pushing for higher numbers, and and you know it's it's tough. You're trying to thread that needle, and he hasn't really been able to do it. it yeah, it's it, it's funny because it, you know pre-production basically we had a very short discussion about this where I, I was basically playing both both parts of the discussion. I'm like, well, why, why, why should we, you know, even consider this, you know, when there's, you know, people, you know, right now paying their loans up to, you know, people who are, you know, on their deathbeds who paid 100% of their student loans. So why do it now? And I'm like, well, I guess the answer is why not? Or if not now, when? But I guess the realer answer is if somebody did an analysis and said, but nobody ever believes those, but if they did an analysis and said, you know, for every dollar you forgive, you're going to get 
I'm making this up, of course, a dollar seventy-five back in in long-term economic growth. You know, the the, the real numbers could be different. There's, yeah, there's definitely something there. I don't I don't know what the numbers are, but I like if you look. Every time we we try to stimulate the economy, we do a stimulus, right? We've, de- we've yep. done it a number of times in recent history. We did it for COVID, right? With that was the PPP, that was the, the stimulus checks. We did it. Uh, Obama did it. Right. So we've done this before where we drop a trillion dollars into the economy with the intention of stimulating the economy. Right. We put the trillion dollars in and we hope that people spend it and then that will get the economy moving. For giving trillion dollars to student loans is the same as dropping a trillion dollars into the economy because the people who can't afford to pay their student loans are, are the people who would be stimulating the economy. Right. The people who you forgive somebody who has a three hundred dollar, four hundred dollar thousand dollar student loan payment every month. Who doesn't have that anymore? Well, now what are they going to be able to do? Well, now they can buy that house they weren't able to afford. They can buy that car they weren't able to afford. They can pay for things, the consumer goods, luxury items, things that they were never able to afford before. That's economic growth. Uh, I wonder what the so effect I, on inflation would be. Would help. I'm sorry, speaking of yours, I wonder what the effect on inflation would be because inflation's crazy right now. We're 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 speaking today. We're recording today, April fifth. I'm not exactly sure when the show will drop, but it, you know it'll still be within spring of 2022 for sure. Um, so right now, inflation is pretty crazy, and and one of the numerous reasons is that there's been a lot of government spending, a lot of government money in the economy. Now, taking away debt isn't exactly the same as putting money in, um, but it might have a, a similar effect. I, I wonder if it would have to be incremental. Or, over time, or you just take the plunge and let it all shake out. That you understand that for six months there might be a little bit of a storm, but after a while it becomes the new normal. Yeah, I think we probably need probably an economist for this. <laughs> yeah, it would. Well, sure, but I, I would suspect it would have something similar to just a, a massive minimum wage increase, right? So, so we're talking about people who, because the people who can afford this, are this isn't going to change anything in their life. Right. If you could afford your student loans. You're not going to be spending more just because your student loans were forgiven. It probably didn't affect you in any meaningful way. The people that would be affected by this are the people who can't afford to live while also paying their student loans. We're talking about lower middle class, lower class most likely, and probably even a portion of the middle middle class. So those are the same types of people that are affected by minimum wage increases. What would happen if we increase minimum wage? I think you're going to get a similar effect from blanket loan forgiveness. Interesting. I wonder if uh, I wonder which would have more of an effect. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not an economist. You're probably closer, but you're not either. And it's, it's just so interesting where it led us. It's it's an interesting day to have this just by coincidence. And I, I spent too much time on my podcast selling other people's podcasts, but I listened to a podcast called The Eastern Border. The, the gentleman's name is Christoph. He's Latvian. And, uh, and actually, he's been on my other podcast before. And, the, and of course, that show was entitled The Eastern Border. And it was, the other show is Garden of Doom. And that was The Eastern Border. And, you know, we talked about sort of Eastern myths, legends, monsters, things like that mythology. But what does this have to do with anything? Just today, his guest was another podcaster who's American, but until recently lived in Ukraine. And at the end of the conversation, they sort of got into the difference between socialistic and socialism. And that, you know, if 
people aren't worried about how to pay for an ambulance or their medicine and they have to worry about their education. You have a more educated population and, and, you know, people will spend their money more wisely. You get more out of it than you don't. It seems pretty simple. And, um, you know, you know, and he went back, bent over backwards to say he's centrist. And I think he is pretty centrist. I mean, what's centrist for Latvian versus the U S don't know. I'm not smart enough, but, I'm very sympathetic to your advocacy today because I heard it from someone else today who really has doesn't have much interest in U.S. internal policy. He was just making a, a a point that that you know that's sort of the way it works in other places, and we, we're causing a whole lot of difficulty for ourselves. And, and as you put it earlier, just the way it's set up right now, people aren't paying it anyway. We're just making it more difficult and causing a whole lot of stress. Uh, for decades of people's lives, sometimes more than one generation of people, co-signing parents, uh, kids who inherit their, their, their parents' worries, not the debts necessarily. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting one. I did not realize that, that one way or another, it's pretty easy not to pay your student loans. Um, but it, it probably doesn't feel easy on the path. Uh, so it, I didn't expect to get this much into policy and frankly, my mind being swayed on this, but well done, counselor. Well, we try. I mean, you see, when you deal with these people who are in this kind of trouble every day, uh, you're trying to get them out of trouble. It's really easy to see how we could do things a little bit differently. And you mentioned, if you don't have to worry about paying for school, maybe you make different choices. We talk about things like uh, you know, the nursing shortage, maybe we'd have more nurses if people weren't worried about paying for nursing school. Mm-hmm. So we might be able to address some other policy things differently too, if we were able to educate people without them being worried about paying those loans. Should also apply to, should also apply to vocational schools as well, because I mean, I think that everyone thinks you need to go to college and frankly, you come out with a philosophy degree and, you know, it's, it's probably not particularly useful, but if you come yeah. out with a welding degree, especially, you know, or, or, you know, uh, you know, a cybersecurity degree, uh, you know, you're probably much more marketable. Yeah, and that's an interesting point, too. I mean, when I talk about education, I typically, I, I mean all education, but which is both college and trade. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone does, but some of those technical schools were actually ripe with uh, fraud um, and, and by changing the way we charge for school, that may no longer be the case. I mean, a lot of those schools that ended up shutting down, uh, the schools that were ended up being sued by the attorneys general and things like that were quasi-technical schools. Um, well, not, pro- not hard trades, but like ITT tech and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, there, there are private schools that do that too, maybe not with the same amount, but I don't know. I mean, I guess that's where certified schools come into play. And then again, you're asking the government to certify things, uh, but uh, maybe they'll be a little bit more diligent in the certification if they're not worried about administering and managing loan programs. You just shift personnel and, and resources over that. So interesting. This was a little bit more of a policy discussion than I expected. But with the, a question on the student loans, where we were talking about if you were uh, certified for the student loans, would most vocational and tech schools, would, would they count? Can they be certified to be part of this uh, federally uh, federal student loan programs? Yes, um, a lot of them can be. So the, the question, so it's Title IV, um, and the question is whether or not you have Title IV eligibility. 
And that with your Title IV eligibility, you are eligible to have federal loans pay your education. Uh, and a lot of, I like to think about like community colleges, like community colleges have a lot of those technical programs and community colleges generally are Title IV eligible. Um, private schools, not always the case, not always the case. And that's why I mentioned there's a lot of them uh, that it actually ran into issues because they were not Title IV eligible. They were not federally uh, eligible for federal loans. So a lot of people took out private loans to pay for them because they had to. Uh, and then the schools ended up closing or defrauding them. And then they became subject of a lot of different lawsuits and things that you that are still floating around. I mean, Pennsylvania just settled one a month ago, two months ago, I think, with Navian. Well, we had a Trump University recently, and I, I really don't want to get political, but that's one of the most recent cases of a private university that, that was shut down for basically for fraud. Um, that's that's it. Uh, in my other life, I, uh, I'm a professional wrestling fan, and they have there's wrestling schools. <laughs> I'm not sure if, how I feel about that one, but that that's uh, uh, that, I've thought a lot aloud enough on this episode. I think I'll stop right there at the wrestling school one. Um, is there anything about student loans and student loan law that I should have asked you that, that I didn't, that, that had I asked you the right question that you would have uh, given, you know, there's the something you feel like you need to tell the audience? Yeah, I think we, we touched peripherally on, on some of the administrative discharges because I mentioned like total permanent disability discharge. There's a lot of those floating out there. Um, we deal with a lot of it. So it's not just the income driven repayment forgiveness, but you may be eligible for other types of forgiveness options. So if you have federal loans and you're concerned and you think you, you need a way out, it's at least worth looking into. If you're disabled, you may not have to pay the loans back. Uh, if your school closed while you were in school, you weren't able to finish the degree, you might not have to pay the loans back. If you were defrauded by the school, you might not have to pay the loans back. And, th and there's a number of those programs and they're all yeah. listed on the Department of Education, but we call them administrative discharge because the Department of Education reviews it and says, no, we agree, you shouldn't have to pay back the loan for some reason, and then they forgive it. So those those are available. Those are non-bankruptcy options. You deal directly with the Department of Education, and maybe you don't have to pay. That sounds great. All right. Well, thank you, Patrick Best. Thank you so much. Uh, tell the folks where they can find you and tell them about your projects and how they can reach you and then uh, you know what else you do that they might be interested in. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I, uh, my website's armlawyers.com. That's A-R-M, lawyers.com. Um, all my contact information is there. All my practice areas are there, but I do a whole lot of financial stuff. So if you're interested in any of that, it's all there. I do have a couple books that we give away for free, including one on student loans. Uh, they're all available on the website for download. So if you need to reach me, hop on armlawyers.com and, and shoot us an email. And those, uh, you had a couple of YouTube shows I remember talking about earlier? Yeah, it's all on the website. Uh, we, we do tax talk. We talk about taxes. We do uh, bankruptcy basics. We, I have this uh, disability uh, YouTube channel as well. So every all everything's available on the website. Uh, all of our resources, uh, all of our contact information, everything's all right in one spot. Perfect. Great. So folks, check out his website. Go there. Everything is right there. One-stop shopping, whatever you're interested in. Either it's just to download the book or you want to subscribe to one of the channels. Uh, or if you have a question about for you or your family, uh, like I said, he does some things nationwide as well. And I'm, and I'm sure uh, with all the speaking and groups he's been part of, uh, even if he doesn't, he's probably got a nationwide network of, of people he could contact you with that are um, have a similar 
approach to advocacy and philosophy as he does. And listen, he's convinced this old guy who yells at cloud, so uh, that's pretty impressive. So, all right, I thank you once again for your time and uh, generosity and, and being part of the show. You taught me a lot. A lot of this is, frankly, past the time that I needed to worry about it. Uh, you know, luckily enough, when I was younger, I was fortunate enough to start 529s for my children. And, uh, you know, when uh, at least one of them looks like he's going to be going to a state school, so that that should be enough. Um, but uh, again, we're not, we only talk about me. Every, most people are not able to do that, or at least not fully funded, and student loans have to be part of someone's life. So this is very re relevant, both on the policy and on the legal side of it. So thanks again for your time. And folks, thank you for listening. Next week, we'll have another episode of uh, Garden Views. If you like this show and you came upon it by accident, just subscribe to Garden of Doom. Garden Views is on the same feed, not separate feed, so you're going to have to suffer one to get to the other, but you don't have to listen to the other. Hope you do, because there's something for everyone there, but if it's not your cup of tea and you just want sort of these more mainstream type of interviews, we're going we're gonna to continue doing this until I run out of stuff and guests, and that generally will not happen. Um, so thanks again. Tell your friends and everybody. I see the crystal raindrops fall And the beauty of it all Is when the sun comes shining through To make those rainbows in my mind When I think of you sometime And I want to spend some time with you Just the two of us We can make it if we try
save the Australian way this Easter at Coles. And to help make your Easter shopping easier, we've added thousands of extra home delivery windows and thousands of extra click and collect windows. Shop online at coles.com.au.